0: Hello church, if you would open to Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, and we will read
1: together verse 16 to 34, I, I say read together, I will read it to you, to us, this is God's word, Paul says, as we were going to the place of prayer, oh, wrong chapter. 17, chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue and with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And he took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceived that in every way you were very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar in, with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that though they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is not actually far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought, not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or anything formed by the art or image of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among whom were Dionysus and Aragapet, the woman named Demarius, and others with them.
0: Father, Lord, we know there will always be
1: those who will mock your resurrection and your gospel. Lord, we know that there will always be those willing to hear. And Lord, we know
0: that even some will believe.
1: And so, Father, we pray for that belief. That you would grant it, that you would give eyes that see and ears that hear, even in the preaching of your word. And so come and do this work, Holy Spirit, through the Word.
0: We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, uh, we are week two in a series uh, that we started last week on apologetics of the resurrection. Uh, And I mentioned that apologetics is an apologizing. Uh, That's not what the word means. It's from apologia or a defense. It's giving a defense of Christ and of the Christian faith. And we looked at last week 1 Corinthians 15, which Paul sought to build the argument that if Christ doesn't raise from the dead, our faith is in vain and we're still in our sins. There is no Christianity. And so we talked about how essential it is that we believe in the resurrection, that we defend the resurrection, because our whole faith depends on this event. And so now we're a week after Easter, and we're still talking about the resurrection. Why? Uh, And we could give many reasons, but uh, one of the main reasons I want to continue to talk about the resurrection is because many Christians view the resurrection as a a punctiliar event, a singular event, as if it just happened 2,000 years ago when Christ resurrected. And that that's all that the Christian belief in the resurrection is, is that Jesus rose from the dead. And while we believe that, and that is central, there is a ripple effect that has occurred because of Jesus' resurrection. You could say, as it does in one passage, that he raises us up together with him. There are other implications to the resurrection for us and for others, future implications. And that is a big part of how we defend Christianity. Christ's resurrection and the resurrection effects. And so, um, you know, the other other thing I would say is there's there's two problems in apologetics in our day. Uh, There's more, but maybe these are worth saying right now. Uh, One of them is that many Christians don't feel equipped to defend their faith. You know, because you're not watching... Uh, all the latest, uh, debates and you're not reading all the apologetics books and you just have normal lives. You're working jobs. You're raising your kids. You're, you know, you're, you're doing life, but you're not studying every philosophical and, uh, you know, high level argument to defend your faith. And so when a skeptic comes or somebody comes to ask questions, you've often, many often don't feel ready or equipped to give a, a good answer. And I think that's tragic, and it, isn't, it really isn't necessary, uh, I'll argue today, that, that we feel that way. Here's another problem. Uh, Jonathan Edwards laid this out in, se- in the 1740s. He was in early England trying to reach the Indians with the gospel, and he said this, how will the Indians, with no knowledge of history, or of the wider world, or any ability to read with any formal training in logic, how would they be able to have a well grounded confidence in scripture or its claims? How, how does a villager in Nigeria, a Muslim villager, believe this book? On what basis? You know, how, how does a pre literate tribesman in Papua New Guinea become a Christian and then, if he is a Christian, know that it's true? That's a really important question. And I want to take a few weeks. We got three more weeks in this series, counting this week, uh, to to answer that. But I think we need to start with Paul. Because Paul is not just a witness for Christ or a missionary or an apologist. He is the apologist, he is the missionary, he is the apostle to the Gentiles. And who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles are non-Jews. The Gentiles are those who did not have the Word of God and had no background of these things. And that's our culture. And that's the people that we interact with. They're not Jews. They do not have the history of the Jewish people uh, as a foundation. They're Gentiles. They're biblically illiterate often. And that's who Paul is commissioned to speak to and that's who we will speak to. And so his approach is very instructive for us. And I want to lay it out in just two, two steps. Okay, two steps. Step one. He understands the myth of neutrality. He understands the myth of neutrality. That is, that all people will bow and do bow to something as Lord. Either to Jesus Christ as Lord or to something or someone else as Lord. Nobody is neutral toward Christ. You love Him or you hate Him. You worship Him or you worship someone else or something else. You are either for or against Him. There's no neutrality. This is what Paul sees when he goes into uh, Athens. Look at verse 16. It says, His spirit was provoked within him and he saw that the city was what? Full of idols. Some people say that Athens had more idols than people. And that's not uh, an exaggeration. There were about 10,000 people there, rough estimates say, and there are about 30,000 idols. You would have seen walking through this very wealthy city on all the buildings, the temples, all of these Greek gods. And so Paul, it says in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, and then he'd go into the marketplace where these Gentiles were, and every day with those who happened to be there, and even some Epicurean or Stoic philosophers. Now remember that philosophy, we're going to get back to that. And he would converse with them, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so now these people bring him, because of him preaching every day in this little marketplace, they bring him before the Areopagus, that's governing council of about 30 civic leaders and scholars that determine kind of the ethics and the religion of that area. And they said, what is this new teaching that you're presenting us? And then here's what happens. He says to these leaders, to these scholars, to these philosophers, you are very religious. So I want, I want us to see a connection here between idolatry, philosophy, and religion. This is a very important connection that I think this passage is making very clear. Idolatry in the, Old Test- or in the New Testament, let's make sure we get a right understanding of idolatry. Idolatry is not just carved images of, of false gods and things that people bow down to. In the New Testament, there's a verse that says covetousness is idolatry. So that idolatry is a heart posture, not just a physical bowing to a false god. You can be an idol worshiper because you love your kids more than God, or your spouse, or your job, or money, or entertainment, or any possession, or just comfort and health and fitness and food, right? Anything you love more than God can become an idol. And and many times is an idol. Paul even said to Christians at the end of 1 John, keep from idolatry. Christians can worship false gods. They can become functional saviors, functional deities, functional gods that at a heart level we bow down to and worship more than the Lord. That is rightly called an idol. And so look at this. We have a city full of idols who are very caught up in philosophy. In fact, at this time, Athens was the philosophical center of the world. It was full of idols and full of philosophy. Is that an accidental connection? No. Not at all. What is the connection? Well, philosophical systems oftentimes are used to justify idolatry.
0: we worship
1: or we come up with, rather, a philosophical or ideological system to suppress the truth of God so that we can justify living for something or someone else other than God. And it happens all the time. This is how Paul says in Romans 1 that there are people and many, 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 many people suppress the truth In unrighteousness, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been what? Clearly perceived ever since the foundation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Although they knew God, non-believers knew God, not savingly, but knew Him, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And listen to this. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. That's what happens. You suppress the truth of God. You raise something else up that is not God, and you worship it rather than the real God. That's what idolatry is. And so here's how it works practically. Step one, you find something other than God to love, to worship, or exalt. Job, family, whatever. It could be a good thing, but you just love it too much. right? You exalt that thing. Then, unknowingly, I would even say uh, subconsciously, so you may not realize you're doing this, but you go, how do I justify my love for this thing? My, the the fact that this thing is supreme in my life. How do I justify the fact that my kids matter to me more than anything? My money and my possessions matter to me more than anything. How do I justify that affection? And then what do we do? We find a philosophical, ideological, or religious set of beliefs that tell us not only that's okay, but that's right.
0: That's what happens.
1: That's why secularism exists. That's why cults and moralistic and legalistic forms of Christianity exist. Secularism says uh, you can sacrifice your child to the child in your womb to Moloch on the altar of your career or your own self-autonomy. We call it abortion. It's an idea, it's a philosophical system that justifies child sacrifice. This is why religious legalism exists. You can put your family above everything. It can have all your heart rather than God having all of your heart. And we call that wrongly sometimes Christianity. Because the externals might look good. So we create philosophical or religious systems that are not biblical to give worship to creature rather than creator. And it's happening in Athens. And these particular philosophical systems had to do with Stoicism and Epicureanism, which are two Hellenistic philosophies. So this is after Plato and Aristotle. This is a, a, a maybe a second generation or third generation type philosophy built off of those Greek philosophies. This has roots in materialism, hedonism, and fatalism. So these gods that they created uh, were gods that gave them material things, or or so they believed. Uh, These were gods they created who would give them pleasure and who would not judge them for what they did because they were hedonistic and pleasure was ultimate. And so if I can make a god that gives me that pleasure, and then doesn't judge me for it at the end, that's a good God to worship. And so both these philosophical systems actually hated the idea of religion because religion tells people that you will give an account one day for how you live and what you do in this life. And so they rejected the afterlife, they rejected the resurrection, they rejected eternal life, because that's very inconvenient if you're a materialist or a hedonist. You see how religion and philosophy are very connected. And people form gods to justify their own selfishness.
0: Guys, we will bow to Jesus as Lord, or we
1: will bow to something else. We are made in God's image. We are made worshipers. We will worship something. So no matter who you talk to, it doesn't matter. You could be a 10-year-old child, it could be a 50, 60-year-old, any college like everybody's worshiping something. What are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping? Is always the question. And I'm saying that there's no neutrality in Athens, there's no neutrality in Pensacola. This is a basic starting point in assumption. And this gets into also something called the Noahic effects of sin. This is something, you don't have to remember that term, but it, the idea is that the sin that we receive when we're born, when we're born into the sinful nature, it doesn't just affect our hearts and our wills, it also affects our minds. And why that's important is because some apologists, some defenders of the faith will say that there is a neutrality in the mind. And if we can get a non-believer to think right thoughts about God, then they'll get saved. The mind is neutral. There's this mental state that we could work someone toward through our good arguments, and it's a neutral place. And I don't think that's how Scripture speaks, especially 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13, that says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? for they are folly to him. And he is not able, it's an an issue of ability, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And and, and then right before that, listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 21 says, "Where Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the wisdom of God. And and so look at the two categories there. Jews demand signs. That was last week, right? We talked about everybody wants more evidence. You tell them the gospel, they're like, well, it's not enough. Give me more evidence. Give me more signs. Give me more proof. Jews demand signs. Jesus said this to them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, who was three days and nights in the belly of a fish. So the story of Jonah, written in the Old Testament,
0: there's your sign. Prophecy
1: of the death and resurrection of Christ. Doubting Thomas, we looked at last week. Everybody's telling him, guys, we've seen the risen Lord. Thomas, we've seen him. And Thomas is going, I won't believe unless I touch his hands, unless I see him physically. He was an empiricist. He wanted evidence. He wanted physical proof. He says, I only believe something if I can touch it, if I can see it. And so eight days later, he's standing there with the other disciples. Jesus shows up. And and so graciously says to Thomas, look at my hands. See my side? Touch it. Put your
0: hand. And then he says, don't disbelieve, but believe. And then Thomas goes, oh, my Lord and my God. But then Jesus says, you're not the
1: blessed one, Thomas. Of course you believed because you saw. Blessed are those who have not seen but believe what is jesus saying the word of god is sufficient we can't all be in that room with thomas touching jesus's wounds after the resurrection but blessed are those later who take the testimony of those who were in scripture and believe that's the basis of our faith jesus is saying i was in college um you know, a number of years ago, but I was, I've mentioned before, I was a philosophy major, and so I was interacting with a lot of skeptics to the faith, a lot of skeptics to Christianity, and we were in hostile uh, classes where this was an intentional aim to destroy uh, foundational kind of evangelical Protestant beliefs in things like the resurrection. And so there was one guy who was a very outspoken atheist, very intelligent guy, and he would always speak up and just show his disdain for christianity and things like that and one week uh he comes to class and he's utterly different because his girlfriend died earlier that week suddenly and it shook him and he in class he began to say what if christianity is true and it and it, it seemed genuine to me sitting there in class listening to to this what seemed to be a genuine question i pulled him aside after the service or after the class And said, hey man, I heard what you said in class. Why don't you believe in Christ? You're saying, what if Christianity is true? What makes you think it isn't? And he said, I just need more evidence. I need more proof. I said, well, what kind of evidence would you have to have? He said, I would want God to talk to me. And to tell me what the Bible says about Jesus is true. And I said, I forget his name now. I said his name, I said, he has. You just don't believe him.
0: And then I quoted to him,
1: Luke 16, where Jesus says, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if someone raises from the dead.
0: And he said, I can't. Just take the Bible's word for it. And I said, You won't take the Bible's word for it. It's different.
1: People cannot believe because they will not believe. People don't become Christians because they don't want to become Christians. People don't believe the Bible because they don't want to believe the Bible they don't take this as god's word because they don't want to take this as god's word but those who are willing to receive it god will convince them that it is true this is how jesus this is maybe a weird way that jesus argues but listen to john 7:17 7, if anyone's will is to do god's will he will know whether this teaching is from god if your will is to do God's will, you will know these things are true. Second Thess- uh, Thessalonians 2.10 says, People perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Ephesians 4.17 says of non-believers that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. You say, oh, but that's innocent. I mean, they're, they're ignorant. I mean, well, well, of course they don't believe. But then it says this, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. It's a willful suppression of truth. I don't want to believe. Because that would mean I have to deny
0: self. I have to deny sin. I have to repent. Skeptics don't need more evidence. They need new hearts.
1: Neutrality is a myth. We were made in God's image. We will worship. We do worship. The issue is who and what do we worship? Paul goes into Athens and understands that. Here's the second step or the second thing. He respectfully engages non-believers or idolatrous presuppositions and worldviews. I want to unpack this, but He respectfully engages non-believers or idolatrous presuppositions and worldviews. So many of you know there's a, there's a verse that if you read any book on apologetics or defending Christianity, they will use this verse as kind of the ultimate verse. It's 1 Peter 3.15 It says, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That's the verse we know. But right after that, it says this, but do it with gentleness and respect. Paul did that. When he said in verse 22, men of Athens, I can perceive that in every way you are very religious. That wasn't an insult. He isn't insulting them by calling them religious. He's being respectful. You know, many Christians, and y'all know this, many Christians say right biblical things, but they do it very arrogantly, antagonistically, in an insulting manner, and then wonder, am I being persecuted for Christ? Maybe. Or maybe
0: they just think you're a jerk. Because the
1: truth is to be defended with respect and with gentleness and i can tell you even standing up here i'm speaking more boldly standing up here than i would in a private conversation with someone i mean i'm i'm here to proclaim i'm called to proclaim up here but when i get down and i'm sitting down with you talking i'm i'm not saying the same i'm not speaking in the same authoritative way that doesn't mean i'm backpedaling against the truth it just means there's a context for these things But respect and gentleness is always the aim. But this doesn't mean we aren't bold, because look at verse 23. He says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul knows Christianity isn't to just be analyzed. We don't just pick it apart and theologize about the Scriptures. It's to be proclaimed. He says, I proclaim this to you. What? God. They're idolaters. And he goes, this is who God is. This is the one who is worthy of worship. And he does it boldly, but respectfully. And and he does two categories. And these are the two categories. We talk about this every week in Citigroup. We ask, who is God? And who are we? Those are the categories Paul goes into.
0: He says, this is your creator who made you. And this is who you are. You came from one man, Adam. Adam. He
1: he tells them who God is, he tells them who they are. Um, some of y'all know that I was very influenced, uh have been very influenced by Paul Washer. Um, early on as a Christian, uh I found him as a as a preacher and teacher uh you know a year after I was saved. And then um As this church was being planted 13 years ago, we joined up with the church, uh, his mission organization was with and, and planted through them. And he used to tell us when you're talking to non-believers or, uh, someone of a different religion, what he would do. And again, he's a missionary and leads a mission organization. He would ask the person, what God, what is your God like? And they would tell him, he's like this, he's this. And, and he'd say, now this is the biblical God. And they'd go, okay. And then they would share what their view of God was. And then he goes, but this is what the biblical God is like. And you go back and forth a few times and, and it becomes very clear the biblical God is superior in every way. And he trusted the Spirit of God and taught us to trust the Spirit of God to, to show the person that. And that's not hard, is it? You see how simple that method is? I, I do think that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I've heard your philosophical systems. I'm, I'm familiar with Epicureanism and the Stoic philosophies. I know Hellenist philosophy. I understand these gods that you worship, but here's the biblical God. Here's the one who made you. And he puts it before them. He actually juxtaposes their false gods with the true God, Epicureanism. Epicure, C- Epicanerians were polytheists. That is, they worshipped many different gods. Stoics were what, the, what we call pantheistic. They essentially believed everything was God. The universe is God, and therefore kind of nothing is God. And so Paul says the, the real God is essentially, uh, he's different than both of your systems. He's a triune of persons. He's one God in three persons. He lays out a completely different God. Philosopher Gordon Clark said, both the Epicureans and Stoics sought to relieve themselves of providence. So they don't believe in providence. They don't believe in in a God who sovereignly ordains and orchestrates all things. What did Paul then preach? Well, I don't want to do that. That might offend them. He goes, God is sovereign. Not
0: concerned that they didn't agree with that. He even quotes these
1: Stoic poets essentially saying, All your attempts to seek God are nothing more than a blind man with his eyes closed, groping around and not even knowing what you're looking for.
0: People are seeking. They don't even know what they're seeking. They're blind. But as one theologian says, it's a culpable ignorance. Because look at verse 30. The times of ignorance, God has overlooked. But now,
1: in this age, post-resurrection, all the way through to the second coming of Christ, there's a new word. It's called repent.
0: But now, He is
1: commanding all people everywhere to repent because they're ignorantly culpable. Even if they don't understand all these things, He says, doesn't mean they're not true. And they must repent. And again, guys, I understand even as I say that. A skeptic is going to say, on what basis? Why? What evidence has been given? Look at verse 31. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance. Proof. Evidence. Same word. To all by raising him from the dead. So all people, verse 30, must repent. Why? Because God has marked His calendar. It says He's fixed a day and He's appointed a man. And He's given assurance, verse 31, proof, evidence. To some people? No. It says all people. He has given proof to all people by raising Him from the dead. So, when someone goes, What proof or evidence are you giving me that I have to believe in this Jesus? Get our argument. It's threefold creation. God created you, He created all things. You know there's a God. That's Romans 1. He explicitly says, All people know there is a God. There is no such thing as a true atheist in that regard. Two conscience. God has written His law on our hearts. It says in in Romans 1 as well, uh, that those who sin know they deserve to die. There's a sense of justice in us. And all people know that. Now listen, people suppress that. You can suppress that knowledge so that you say, I am an atheist. I don't care what you say. I don't believe there's a God. Okay. The Bible calls that a suppression of knowledge, a suppression of what has been made clear. But here's the third proof. The resurrection. Paul uses the resurrection as a proof to all people indiscriminately. And so the argument is God exists. Even your own conscience bears witness with this truth and that this God is just. And then verse 31, he's given assurance or proof to all by raising his son from the dead. In other words, the biblical evidence for the resurrection is enough to be saved
0: or to be judged.
1: Again, Jesus said, Luke 16, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if someone raises from the dead. Matthew 12 and Matthew 16, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They want more evidence, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, who is three days and nights in the belly of a fish. The resurrection is enough evidence and proof to believe or for God to be just in His judgment. There is... Something else Paul's doing here, and this is just incredibly helpful if we can see it. I'll let Jordan, or uh, Gordon Clark again lay this out. He says, both the Epicureans and Stoics taught that the world was made of atoms, which move without purpose or wisdom. Therefore, the world cannot work out of a wise providence because it contains too many obvious defects. So what were they saying? They're saying there's no way there can be a God because there's too much evil and injustice in the world. You ever heard that argument? It's amazing, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? There's no way there's a God. Look at all this. It's too messed up. No good God, at least, would allow for that. And and, and this this is what I love about Christianity. The resurrection is a backhanded defense and explanation to that question of the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, the problem of injustice, the problem of Diseases and. If Christ has risen from the dead and he is a just judge, all evil will be dealt with. Evil's not a problem anymore, at least the justice part of it. If Christ has risen from the dead, the problem of suffering is also being dealt with because we have the hope that we will raise one day and get new bodies. And so there is a world coming where there will be no more suffering. So according to the Christian gospel, that alleviates the problem of suffering. Or the problem of sin. How many questions behind the question, you know, LGBT issues, we could talk about sexuality, race, gender type issues that are all the questions in culture. How many of those questions behind it is just sin? Right? It's all, the, the issue only exists because of sin. Well, the resurrection deals with that because he's giving us new bodies, his people, where there is no sin. They're righteous. Even problems like death, or natural disasters, or diseases, are all, according to the teaching of the resurrection, not problems. The solution is the resurrection. That future resurrection that's coming. And I I don't remember who said this, but it's such a good quote. They, They said something along the lines of, even if you reject the idea of the resurrection, you at least hope it's true because it's such good news.
0: That's true. I
1: want to close and just say one thing to the Christians in the room and then one thing to maybe if there's skeptic here or two. To the Christians, I want to say something about the methodology that Paul's using. Because this sermon is more to equip us as believers how to defend the truth, and I want to make sure we see what he's doing here. You've got to get the context. OK. Paul is talking to not just a few smart guys. All right? These are Hellenistic philosophers. This is the height of Greek philosophy, the height of human thought. OK? We are not talking about people who are just a little bit smarter than us. We are talking about people who are way smarter than us. And so, if there were ever a person that. And then you have Paul, who's a very intelligent man. Okay, he's off the cuff. He's quoting uh, two Stoic poets and a hymn of Zeus. Off the cuff. No preparation. Just quotes it. All right, this man is very educated, Paul. If he could have pulled out some really smart, tight, Aristotelian argument with all the logic that they would have wanted as Greek philosophers, he would have done it right here. But he doesn't do it.
0: Because why? Because there's no power in it. Greeks seek wisdom. But there's
1: not power in that wisdom. He understands that. What is their power in? The bold and clear proclamation of who God truly is and what His Son has truly done. For some who believe that will be the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul gets that. And we need to get that. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you can't give... a a smart argument to someone give the archaeological or historical evidence you you can lay out whatever you think might be helpful to lay out i mean paul does go outside of scripture and quote you know a, a greek poet he does he does it's not that it's wrong to give something outside of the bible to someone that you think might be helpful i'm just saying you don't have to that's not where the power is in other words christianity is not being held up or propped up by external biblical or extra-biblical evidence. History that happened outside the Bible that's not taught here. Logical arguments that are Aristotelian are not propping up and holding up the truthfulness of Christianity so that if you want to prove to someone what this Bible says, you have to give them all of that. That's not how Paul's arguing this. I would argue that he's more like Charles Spurgeon who said about the Bible and its claims, it's like a lion. You just let it loose and it defends itself.
0: He knows the power is in
1: what the book says and the Holy Spirit using that, not in how good we can argue it. Is this making sense? I mean, I think this is what Paul's doing and I think that's helpful for us to put our confidence where the power truly is. Now, one more thing, uh, and this may be helpful to a few of you and others of you not so much, but he's doing it here. A lot of the scholars point out that he's arguing from history to prove God. He starts with history to prove God. I would agree with that, but then I would ask, what type of history is he using to prove God? Because what he says about history is a a version of history that only a Christian would believe. He says God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And that all men come from one man. Now is, is the secular person out at the university going to agree with that version of history? No. But that's the basis in which Paul's preaching. He doesn't... He doesn't leave the Bible aside and give them some sort of neutral view of history that they agree with. He starts with a point in history that only the Bible reveals to them. God is the creator. We all came from one man. Here's what I'm trying to make sure we understand. Just because someone doesn't agree with your starting point doesn't mean you don't start there.
0: Just because somebody says, well, I don't believe God exists. Okay.
1: Well, he does. He does. So, let me tell you about him. All right, this is, I mean, it's literally, it's the person who doesn't, who denies gravity. I don't believe in gravity. Well, you fall off that building, you're going to believe pretty quick. Right? It, it, there's certain truths like that. Uh, you come up with a sophisticated argument to say, fire's not hot, it's not going to burn me. As soon as you put your hand in the fire, you're going to realize your little sophisticated argument wasn't so good. And your burnt hand is the, is the evidence of that. Paul's argument is Christ has resurrected from the dead and the Lord has fixed a day in which His resurrected Son will be the judge of all people whether they realize it or acknowledge it or not. Therefore, repent. And and here's how we'll close. How the passage closes. It says some mocked. Maybe even in your heart there's somebody here that's going that's the stupidest thing. It's called circular reasoning. Can't use the text to prove the text.
0: And they mock and they walk away. I know. It's possible. That happened to Paul. Some mocked, it says. But then it says, others said what? We'll hear you again about this. You've said enough things that,
1: you know, I'll listen a little more. That could be legitimate. Some people are in that category, and then there's another category. It says some joined Paul and believed, and there's always that category as well. Someone who goes, "You've said enough. The Bible said enough. I'm I'm in." And I just want to, I just want to end appealing to those three categories for for someone
0: here. Which one are you? Which
1: category of those three are you? Are you the person who mocks? And you leave going, I'm I'm fine. Do that at your own risk. Many do. Banking on the fact the resurrection isn't true. It's a dangerous way to live, but many do it. Or are you the person who goes, I'll, I'll come back. I'll talk more. I'll listen to more. I'll actually start reading my Bible. This sounds somewhat legitimate. And I would say to you, what Paul said to these philosophers, you might find, that God is not that far from you.
0: As you seek Him, you might find Him. He might be found by you. And then
1: I'll say lastly, for those of you who say, I don't know if I believed earlier, but I think I'm believing this. I would love to talk to you and encourage you and tell you, if you do believe these things, there is a next step, and it's baptism. And we can talk about that, because that's what you do after you believe. And so, I'll leave it there today, and we'll pick this up
0: next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Father, O Lord, we thank You that You have given us Your Word. What an amazing thing to think
1: of Paul, inspired by the Spirit, speaking this message in the ears of all these people, and that you've preserved this in your word, and you've delivered it to us, and you call it God breathed scripture. Inerrant, infallible, true, authoritative, powerful, able to break even the hardest heart, able to give life to the dead. Lord, we just put our hope in Your Word and Your Spirit to do what we need done in our own hearts through this. Whatever need is in this room, Lord, we pray You would meet that need by and through Your Word. We praise You for these
0: things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.